that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. He's taking on current BC Premier Christy Clark in Vancouver Point Grey. David Eby, former executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association, is here live in studio to discuss the provincial election and the challenges facing Metro Vancouver and why progressive provincial policies matter. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca. And uh, we have a very special guest here in studio, David Eby. Um, he is running as the BC NDP candidate in uh, the Vancouver Point Grey riding and um, up against uh, current Premier uh, Christy Clark with the BC Liberals. And I want to welcome David uh, into the studio. Welcome, David. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, I guess I just want to ask you, how uh, how is the campaign going? Um, and... Maybe also give people a little bit of uh, uh, background um, about yourself. Briefly mentioned um, that you are a former the former executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association, but maybe talk about that trans- transition from that position and uh, your involvement uh, within the NDP. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, just uh, by way of background generally, uh, the riding that I'm running in is Vancouver Point Grey, which is uh, 16th um, down to the water. Uh, and then the eastern boundary is Arbutus, so it includes UBC and Kitts and Point Grey. Um, and uh, about me, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for uh, almost 10 years. Uh, when I started uh, working as a lawyer, I worked at a group called Pivot Legal Society. I worked on housing issues in the downtown east side, issues of homelessness and affordability. And then I moved over to the BC Civil Liberties Association. Um, where I worked on uh, democratic rights, uh, government uh, transparency and accountability, police accountability, uh, and uh, how the criminal justice system uh, works or or doesn't work. And so, um, yeah, I've been engaged in various aspects of public policy for a little while, which um, brought me uh, one way or another 
to where I am today, which is uh, running for uh, MLA. Great. And uh, you ran previously in the last election or in the last by-election. Um, and maybe give us a bit of a refresher as to how that went. It was quite a, a tight race and uh, obviously must have uh, enticed you to, to do it again. Yeah, it was it was very fun, but it was also uh, really crazy. It was uh, I got a, a call um, from the candidate search committee in Vancouver Point Grey who were looking for someone to run, and I um, decided to run on very short notice. And uh, and from deciding to run to the actual end of the election was about a month and a half, uh, and. Uh, it was it was wild, uh, but we had a really great time, and I talked to a ton of people, and there was a huge appetite for change in the riding because, uh, despite the premier uh, significantly outspending us and having way more resources and uh, being the premier for crying out loud, uh, uh, came within 564 votes of uh, defeating her in the by-election. Uh, so we were very proud of that result, uh, and uh, we thought it was uh, very successful, despite the fact that uh, we didn't put an NDP MLA in in the ledge. Uh, from Vancouver Point Grey that time. I think this time uh, it's, uh, we've got a really good shot and uh, it's pretty exciting. What are you hearing out on the street uh, from voters? And um, you briefly gave us an idea of, of Vancouver Point Grey. It's one of the wealthiest writings within the city um, and certainly that has an effect on the type of issues that, uh, that people have. But that's not to say that there aren't issues of poverty and, and housing affordability and access and other issues as well. But give us a sense of what you're hearing out there and some of the issues that uh, are coming up. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting riding because it's called Vancouver Point Grey. So people hear the Point Grey and they assume that that's uh, the whole riding. Um, it's actually a disproportionately young riding. Um, so the average age is uh, in the mid-30s. Um, it's also uh, disproportionately a uh, renting riding. That is, uh, 51% of people who live in the riding are actually renters. Um, and uh, so it's it's uh, not immediately um, how people conceive of it in their minds. They think of it as much older, and they think that it is people owning the single-family homes around Point Grey. Um, I think UBC has a huge piece of influence around that. So the way that campaigns work is you go out and you talk to as many people as you can. So I've been doing something called main streeting, which is basically standing at busy street corners and talking to people. I've been talking to people on the phone uh, and door knocking. And I ask people, I always ask people, oh, do you have an issue? What are you concerned about that the provincial government could do better? And, uh, you know, most people say, oh, you know, I haven't really thought about it. Or, um, But the people who do have an issue... Um, I, I shouldn't be surprised, but I have been surprised by how overwhelmingly in this riding, uh, four out of five people, I would say, uh, list the environment as their uh, number one concern. They say uh, pipelines, uh, the Enbridge Northern Gateway Project, um, climate change, um, uh, just uh, wilderness preservation, uh, you name it, uh, the environmental issue, people are worried about it in this riding and concerned about it and want the province to do a better job. And then of the one in five, usually education-related um, tuition, education, accessibility, class size for uh, grade schools and high schools and compositions, so how many kids with special needs are in a classroom. Uh, those are the two uh, overwhelming issues. And then there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, sort of uh, issues that are bubbling under, like the Broadway corridor transit issue and so on. With your uh, experience and, and work that you've done at Pivot and um, at the BC Civil Liberties Association, What's that transition like from, from being in that role, um, in many ways an advocacy role, um, and moving into politics? And do you, has that transition been, been 
um, perhaps what you expected, or has it come with some some different challenges? And obviously, uh, running in Vancouver Point Grey, I would imagine, um, also comes with its own uh, kind of package of politics. Mm-hmm. A lot of the issues the BCCLA worked on, or Pivot, um, tended often for Pivot to focus in the downtown east side. So how, how does that... Um, how has that shaped, I guess, how you approach the work that you're doing? Well, some of the work that I did with these organizations, the skills were immediately transferable. So talking to the community, identifying what the issues and concerns are, bringing those concerns forward, doing media interviews, talking, doing public education around the issues uh, that are at play, all very immediately transfer public speaking, for example. Um, you're right. There are some major shifts around, uh, around issues, um, but at, at the core... Um, it, it's it's just a different way of talking about the same issue. So there are many people concerned about housing affordability in the riding, uh, and uh, their their way of identifying housing affordability shifts a little bit. They're not talking about the loss of SRO units in the downtown east side, for example. They're talking about the fact that their kids can't afford to uh, live in the same neighborhood that they've lived in, and they'd like them to have that opportunity to live in kits, um, which used to be uh, to them a very affordable and accessible neighborhood, and it isn't anymore. Um, and uh, they'd uh, also like their children have opportunities in terms of jobs, and and so there are economic concerns, and it's not uh, the same kind of concerns around uh, around basic access to uh, educational opportunities or the, the sort of precursors to work, but um, but access to education generally. And so um, it's it's a different. There are many similar issues and just a different sort of angle on them. And uh, the one uh, surprising thing to me has been the consistency in in some of the issues. Throughout Vancouver, obviously, um, there's many, many issues. The B.C. Conservatives have come out with a a proposal to give tax credits to people who are taking the toll bridges um, to appeal to more conservative suburban voters. And I guess thinking about a number of these issues, and perhaps not specifically um, uh, to, uh, to Vancouver Point Grey, but uh, what are some of your key concerns and and what are the, some of the policy challenges that you see within uh, the Metro Vancouver region? Well, I think um, when, when we're sitting here at UBC right now and uh, and so post-secondary institutions in the last budget uh, are proposed to take a $38 million cut. And so knowing that tuition rates are already very high and that um, it's difficult for people to access education, um, and knowing too that eighty percent of the jobs that people are going to need, or that people are are going to be available, people are going to need post secondary education, and so as we make uh, post secondary education and training less and less accessible, less and less affordable, we're entrenching inequality, and I think that uh, that growing gap between uh, the uh, those who have and those who don't have anything uh, breeds a number of issues, including security issues. Um, so. Um, there's uh, public safety issues that come from a wide gap between uh, the wealthy and the very poor. Uh, it breeds further inequality. So the more people you have who don't have access to uh, education and other essential ways of, uh, of uh, precursors to earning a living, um, it, uh, it, uh, it deepens the inequality if you don't do anything about it. And I think that um, when you look at Vancouver, uh, as the city becomes less and less affordable from a real estate perspective, um, and uh, you'll, we're moving into a situation where 
will be like Paris, where you have a ring of people who live around the outside of the city, who can't afford to live in the city, who are uh, grossly unequal opportunities compared with the people who can afford to live inside the city. And I don't think that's the direction we should be heading. And I'm glad that the NDP is addressing those issues and looking at these essential precursors, issues like housing, issues like education, um, issues like basic health care for some people, um, which are essential for them to get into uh, the workforce. And so I'd, that that issue is a, is a critical one and one that's consistent in all of my work, whether it was at Pivot or BC Civil Liberties, uh, equal opportunity for people. I want to take a quick break um, and come back and ask you specifically what the provincial NDP and, and uh, what you, David Eby, would do um, or try to push for as a provincial um, MLA in addressing a number of these issues that are facing the region. Stay with us. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM.
Welcome back to the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and live in studio, David Eby. He's the BC NDP candidate uh, running against uh, current Premier Christy Clark. And uh, David, I wanted to follow up with what we were discussing uh, just before that break. What would a provincial NDP government uh, do? You're talking um, about housing affordability and a number of the concerns uh, within the Vancouver Point Grey writing about their people's children being able to actually afford uh, to live in the area which they grew up. What what would a provincial government, uh, NDP government, uh, bring to the table? Well, it's, an, it's important to understand that it took us 12 years of liberal government to get to where we are, no matter which system is your primary focus, whether you're concerned about uh, the environment in BC or social programs or housing affordability or uh, general good governance. Um, So it's going to be uh, a modest but still a bold agenda uh, in terms of the the trend lines we've been on for a long time in this province. Um, In terms of concrete uh, proposals at this stage, uh, noting that our, our platform uh, won't be released until uh, uh, second week of April, probably. Um, the uh, with respect to education, uh, restoring the forgivable student grant program to make post-secondary education programs more affordable for students. This was a program that was cancelled a couple of years ago by the Liberals. Um, looking at uh, at restoring the apprenticeship programs around trades um, to make trades training uh, accessible uh, again and increasing completion rates around that. Uh, on the environment, uh, fighting uh, and uh, working to uh, end uh, the proposed Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline project, um, using the carbon tax uh, to uh, fund, instead of uh, corporate tax cut, uh, using it to fund uh, transit and other carbon-reducing activities, um, a province-wide ban on cosmetic pesticides, which the Liberals uh, promised and then reneged on, um, and uh, and these are just some of the uh, initial proposals coming out of the government. But what it really is, I think, in, in terms of uh, uh, what the number one issue is that's coming out right now, it's for me, uh, it's an issue of uh, public confidence in government and the fact that government can do good things and that it's not all about holding on to power and it's not all about self-interest or the interest of your powerful friends. It's about doing good things for the province. And uh, we need to restore that public confidence in government. And so um, I think people will see that theme of uh, the need to have accountable government, the need to have government that represents actually the interests of people uh, in proposals like banning union and corporate donations um, so that people know that the government that they're electing is actually representing their interests. This has come up at the local level, and um, I guess uh, to put it uh, bluntly, would the, would an NDP government uh, change that within the Vancouver Charter to to deal with election donations? Um, I I don't uh, I haven't seen that yet as being part of the platform in terms of the municipal mm-hmm. level reform. I know that's something that the city of Vancouver has been asking for. Uh, and I'm sure it'll be part of the discussion between the province and the municipal government. Uh, I can say that within the platform, there is a promise from the NDP that we will ban it at the provincial level. Uh, and I imagine there'll be a number of cities that are interested in asking us to to follow suit. Now, would that be, uh, I guess specifically at the provincial level, would that be um, a cap um, on um, That's correct. personal and ban Union and corporate, or it would how would be a cap? As as I understand it, it would yeah. be a cap on union and corporate donations um, at uh, at a, a level where you 
people could maintain uh, their confidence that, you know, I, th I think that there's certainly an issue of uh, perception around mm -hmm. these kinds of things where if somebody gives a large donation uh, to the government and then there's a policy reform that is favorable to them, people look at it and say, well, of course, you know, you gave a big donation to the governing party. And I think that that, whether or not it's true, has a corrosive effect on democracy. Um, and I think it's something that we need to address. That's why I'm glad the NDP is doing that. I want to go back to housing. Um, there have been calls for uh, reforms uh, to the residential tenancy branch um, from a number of uh, groups um, for a, a number of years um, mm -hmm. throughout the, the tenure of the BC Liberals. What, um, what do you foresee happening? I know the platform hasn't been released, but um, can you tell us if we're likely to see anything um, change? Yeah, Adrian's been clear that uh, that reform of the Residential Tenancy Act um, is uh, is one of the priorities for the government. Um, I know personally, uh, uh, from my experience working in uh, in uh, with tenants, uh, it doesn't matter where in the city and the Civil Liberties Association. I worked with tenants all over the province. Um, the uh, difficulty that people have in even accessing. Uh, the residential tenancy branch, let alone uh, advice on how to get through the process, putting aside the substantive rules themselves, um, it meant that for many people, these were not uh, available remedies. I saw uh, tenants who um, filed for arbitration against their landlords and then faced several uh, rounds of evictions. As soon as they defeated one eviction attempt, another one would be started by the landlord until they were essentially harassed out of their residence. And so this is a system that's not working for people. So clearly it's one that needs uh, reform. And that'll be part of that will be discussion with tenant groups and landlord groups to get uh, a system that is more effective for everybody. Because I, I also believe that the landlord associations are not particularly happy with how it's working either. Um, and, uh, and that's just one of many access to justice issues in the province um, where, uh, you know, it's never going to be a case where everybody's happy with the reform. Um, and uh, someone is going to uh, is, is going to not be happy. But right now, uh, nobody is happy with how the system is working. Do you think rent control by unit as opposed to rent control um, per um, household in that unit is, is likely to happen? Um, I know that that's one of the issues on the table. The other issues, uh, issues around rent evictions, the mm -hmm. ability to return to a unit, unit that's been renovated uh, at the same uh, rent level as when you left. Um, issues around uh, uh, repeated harassment uh, by landlords or repeated and uh, uh, derelict landlords uh, who run problem units across the province. I, I know that all of these things are under discussion. Um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, one of the, speaking of rent control, I, I did a, a canvas of all the storefronts on Broadway and 4th, and, and this isn't currently under discussion, but I thought it was uh, an interesting um, issue that many of the the retail units along there said, you know, we have these leases in place, um, but the people who own the buildings um, are increasing the rents beyond even what our leases say, uh, and we need rent control for commercial, commercial yeah. units. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think there's definitely an appetite for that kind of thing. I know it's part of the discussion, but uh, but at this point, I can't say that that um, is part of our platform. That uh, goes nicely into what I want to talk about next, and that's the proposed UBC Broadway line and some concerns emerging uh, directly uh, from from folks with concerns that commercial um, property values would skyrocket and residential property values would skyrocket if, um, well, it, some of the concerns are stemming from a subway line and 
the land values right around those stations, like we've mm-hmm. seen along the Canby Corridor, um, have skyrocketed. Um, do you share concerns about that? And I guess, firstly, what uh, what's your take on on the current um, uh, dilemma right now? We've we've seen the city of Vancouver, Vision Vancouver, pushing quite uh, aggressively for a subway line, uh, saying that that is the best option and will only deliver uh, the capacity that's required. Mm-hmm. Um, but others have said, why are we looking at the most expensive option? So what's your take? Yeah, um, I know Vision's been very aggressive in, in pushing the subway uh, option. Um, I know too, though, that UBC uh, and the AMS have both taken the position that it's not uh, the mode in particular that they want to dictate, but simply that something be done about the transit situation along the corridor. Um, in my conversations with people uh, in the neighborhoods uh, around Broadway and uh, the businesses, um, there, there are two concerns for the businesses. Uh, one is that they don't want a Canby-style open trench uh, construction project because they won't survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't lose a month of rent, let alone you know, a year two years Mm -hmm. uh, as this project proceeds. Um, So certainly protecting our small and independent businesses and preventing uh, a Canby-style problem for them uh, is is a critical priority, whatever the mode. And the second concern of people uh, is that um, what the project will do is result in incredible pressure on the city to upzone, which means to put uh, 10 stories on what uh, currently is only four or six-story zoning. Uh, and then to use those increased developer amenity fees to pay for the transit project itself. Uh, so in other neighborhoods, these amenity fees go to paying for uh, parks or community centers, community services, and so on. Uh, and the concern is that using this money to pay for the transit system will have a distorting effect of in- having the city want to build much taller, um, but also um, will prevent the construction of essential community amenities like community centers and so on, and that it will fundamentally distort uh, the neighborhood from one where there are a lot of parks and community centers and services into one where there are a lot of towers and little else. And so uh, preserving the character of the neighborhood is a critical priority for people, regardless of the mode of transportation. And so uh, those are the priorities that I've taken from uh, my consultations. One, that we fix the problem. Two, that we protect our small and independent business. And three, um, that we do it while uh, preserving the character of our neighborhoods. I'm sure you remember the the battles uh, when initial discussions um, were occurring about uh, where to put a rapid transit line going north-south, um, and Canby was uh, what was uh, finally decided on, but there were discussions about the Arbutus Corridor and mm. people saying, actually just last week, uh, my guest, uh, Professor Maddie Simiatiki, um, who's uh, at the Geography uh, Department of Geography and Program and Planning at U of T, uh, was reiterating the same um, uh, really deep frustration or anger that, that People think that they could put, you know, a, a transit line down their their Tony neighborhood, um, and basically saying that politicians were dreaming. Um, you're in, um, and as you mentioned, uh, certainly would be uh, wouldn't be appropriate to say it's an over, you know, overwhelmingly uh, wealthy neighborhood. Was but the second wealthiest ride yeah, in okay. DC, so okay. we can we can okay. own that. Okay. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, but certainly there's, I mean, there are people that are even have been opposed to the, to the uh, B line <laughs> running yeah. through that neighborhood. Yeah. Is a light rail line um, or the possibility of anything else even tenable, tenable to have that discussion? Or is the, is the subway line seen as this is politically feasible, even though it's the most expensive um, and 
obviously economic arguments have been made at the municipal level, level from Vision and the mayor um, very clearly. So they've packaged it that way. But I'm just curious whether that's a realization that that neighborhood wouldn't accept a light rail line or a rapid bus or another technology. Yeah, you know, I, I attended the Vision uh, community meeting uh, and I heard some, uh, you know, some disappointing comments from people about uh, students, you know, uh, that uh, that students don't care about this neighborhood, that the student, you know, don't uh, destroy this neighborhood for the students, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think I think that anyone who has taken that bus, uh, whether they're going to work, whether they're a student, whatever, they know that the bus isn't working. It's the busiest transit line in North America. They leave one after the other. If you live on Broadway, these huge diesel buses all day, it's not safe for bikers. You know, I'd the problem needs to be solved. I think that there is a critical mass of consensus that there is a problem here and that it needs to be solved. Um, so I, I hear what you're saying about the resistance to change, period. But, you know, something's going to have to happen to address this issue. Um, so I'm certainly on side with something happening to address this issue. I'm not a transit planner. I don't have the answer about what that would be. Um, but I also um, am, you know, I'm a little bit, this is, this is a province that, uh, you know, in a blink of an eye, uh, built a massive bridge um, uh, to uh, to the suburbs uh, without any thought, uh, as far as I can tell, about uh, regional planning, global warming, climate change, uh, encouraging people to tr- trade their cars for um, public transportation at a huge cost. And so people say, "Oh, this is uh, you know this is a very significant investment to fix public transit along the Broadway corridor, whatever the mode." It is. It's a significant investment, but we spend so much money on promoting uh, uh, car driving uh, in the suburbs. Um, you know, I think that it's appropriate for us to invest in transit, whether it's the Evergreen Line, uh, whether it's the Broadway Corridor, uh, whether it's any uh, other number of transit priorities, light rail uh, uh, in Surrey uh, is their priority. Um, I'm a transit guy. I like transit. Um, I, uh, I don't think that the answer to our future lies in car culture. And we need to start thinking about how we're going to restructure um, uh, if nothing else, you know, our, our cities to encourage people to leave their cars at home uh, if we're ever to hope to re- reach our climate change goals. I guess part of that discussion is also whether a proposed $2.8 billion line is um, a fantasy at a time when uh, communities south of the Fraser um, need that transit so people can think that I can transition from my car to light rail or to a form of rapid mm-hmm. bus. Um, and I'm just wondering whether in that discussion, um, that question of where we, we distribute the transit infrastructure um, is lacking. I, I feel like in some of these discussions, that $2.8 billion um, seems a bit of a, a bit of a fantasy. I know a lot can, a lot can happen, and yep. if the political will is there, it can. But I'm just wondering if we need to think, you know, even... In Vancouver, we need to think about not just ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, I mean, this is a response from a lot of the store owners, too, is that, you know, we've been having this conversation about the Broadway Transit Corridor for the past 10 years yeah. now, uh, and nothing's happened and nothing is likely to happen. You know, it, it is one of the really disappointing things about... Um, about how the liberals have governed our province uh, when you look at the spending priorities around uh, the uh, billion-dollar convention center or the, uh, the $300 million roof on uh, BC Place or, um, or the, uh, the uh, uh, massive bridge projects or the photo ops around the, the parent upgrade of the Massey Tunnel without any description of how it's going to be paid for. 
the Sea to Sky Highway upgrade for the Olympics and on and on and on, uh, is that it seems like there's very little planning about the province's future that goes into these things uh, when there is a crying need for uh, Evergreen Line, Light Rail in Surrey and so on, if we're going to be looking forward as a province. And that's one of the great things about running with the NDP, uh, you know, and, and uh, Adrian as, uh, as the tone that he set, which is that climate change is real, it's happening, we need to meet our climate goals. And to meet our climate goals, we're going to have to invest in things like transit uh, and we're going to have to do planning and we're going to have to think about how we're going to do these things. And currently, that's just not the case. Let's take a quick break. You've got a track lined up, David. Uh, do you want to tell us what it is? Yes. So this is uh, nostalgia for me. I used to do campus radio at Dalhousie when I was in law school and at the University of Waterloo when I was an undergrad. And uh, this is a track I used to play. It's from an East Coast band called The Local Rabbits. And uh, I hope you like it.
will say B, Peru. I'll do it. And that's your final answer? Yes. You can buy a new car. You just want... $33,055.78. To everyone who donated to this year's fund drive, CITR would like to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who helped us meet and exceed our goal of $30,000. Your generous donations help us support local artists, businesses, and marginalized voices in the community. Here's to another 75 years of campus and community radio. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, and in studio today, David Eby. He is the BC's uh, BC NDP candidate running in Vancouver Point Grey against uh, current Premier Christy Clark of the BC Liberals. And uh, we've been discussing a number of things from housing to transportation and David, I want to ask you now um, specifically about the BC NDP's plan uh, for poverty reduction and social housing. There's been um, uh, criticism going towards the NDP that uh, the NDP has been pretty quiet on these issues and um, wondering whether we should expect anything uh, from a new government or whether uh, things like social housing um, are are simply a thing of the past and sort of the following in with the way that uh, the BC Liberals uh, seem to be approaching uh, something like social housing as um, hoping it maybe just goes away by by killing it um, slowly. <laughs> uh, so just uh, your thoughts on that. Well, the, um, the party's been clear, Adrian's been clear. He said that the NDP will have a pov- poverty reduction plan, uh, that it will be uh, an actual plan that uh, people can... Uh, 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 provide feedback on and that we'll uh, engage in consultation to design um, because it's critical that if we're going to address poverty that we have to have a plan to do it. Um, the uh, Center for Policy Alternatives uh, has been pushing for this for a long time and I think they're right to do it along with a number of their allies. Um, and in addition, uh, the social housing and, uh, and uh, housing affordability will be part, and I don't use them in, in any way to be confusing. I Social housing will be part of the uh, platform, uh, and um, that's a priority for the party as well. You know, I think that one of the things that, again, um, a lot of people who are pushing for various issues and social housing, as many will know who know my track record um, of advocacy, is an issue that's very close to my heart, the homelessness issue uh, and addressing those issues. Um, but uh, but recognizing that it's going to take a while before we solve all of these problems, and it's not going to happen all in the first year, and it's not going to happen all in the first term uh, of an NDP government. And so, um, you know, so uh, with that caveat, there will be these is- these issues will be addressed in the platform. Um, I look forward to talking to people about them once they're announced, um, and I also look forward to a time in this province where uh, issues uh, like these uh, receive the priority that they deserve. 
Um, and, uh, you know, because I think many of us have been watching the government and their priorities and just feeling very disconnected uh, from what the liberal government has identified as priorities um, compared to what uh, we see in our communities. How willing would you be as an as a elected MLA um, to really uh, change the direction in something like the Little Mountain uh, redevelopment? A lot of that neighborhood um, is upset about the direction uh, that that has taken and um, the extent um, of development, um, the scale, and also um, the net zero increase in social housing on that site, which um, was a public site and still is. It has not been sold, although we know that Holborn would like to renegotiate um, probably for for a better deal because they realize the softening market. But that said, um, from... From my understanding, that site has not still been sold, um, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, the uh, I mean, Little Mountain is a great example, as is the Olympic uh, Village, of uh, of uh, the real failure of the Liberals to show leadership on housing affordability and social housing. You know, Little Mountain. Uh, it seems like uh, the government completely lost track of the fact that there were real people who lived there. Uh, there was a uh, you know, here, here's a project that uh, showed up three times in the budget as revenue um, in order to balance the budget, uh, never once being sold, uh, and uh, and that revenue never being booked. But all those people who live there, um, their homes, their community, used as a revenue line, uh, and that site sitting tragically empty and demolished and inactive when that community could have been there this whole time and we could have we had all kinds of time to make plans and to consult and to coordinate and the housing there um you know it was uh, it was good housing and it provided people with a good place to live and that, that whole thing was such a tragedy to watch uh, and to work with those uh, people who are fighting for their community and to see that empty lot there every time I see it, it just makes me feel sick. And part of it is that uh, the government, uh, in its eagerness to promote a budget that, for example, this budget that is supposedly balanced, um, is willing to play uh, around with the lives of these people and say, oh, we're going to sell the Little Mountain Project to a private developer and book that revenue. There's a property in Burnaby uh, that was just announced uh, that the province is planning on selling. It's right beside an existing affordable housing, social housing development. Um, uh, perfect land, uh, owned by BC Housing, perfect land for social housing, um, currently being sold by the provincial government to provide the guise of a balanced budget. And uh, it's this kind of gamesmanship around uh, people's lives and housing affordability and real issues that matter in order for them to say, oh, we balance the budget, um, it's uh, it's inexcusable, and uh, and Little Mountain I think is a is a huge tragedy. Median household income in um, in the city of Vancouver is right around forty nine thousand dollars. This is based on the two thousand six uh, census, and um, this is a, a fairly low figure considering uh, the cost of living in this um, in the city and and the metro uh, region. How do you think, and I guess first of all, should a provincial government um, really start a discussion around the importance of, of, we hear a lot about, oh, these many more jobs were added in the province, but we don't talk a lot about what quality of jobs those are. And 
um, qualitatively, are these decent jobs and are these jobs that we're proud to have added onto our, onto our records? Should a provincial government, um, and would you be in favor of pushing forward um, things like the living wage campaign and, and really starting a discussion about what jobs and what labor in the region looks like, um, and not just the region, but I, I um, would imagine across the province? Yeah, I think that this um, issue of uh, living wages and uh, and people having good quality jobs uh, is one that uh, people will see if they haven't already is central to uh, the NDP um, platform. Uh, the disappearing uh, middle class in British Columbia, um, the, uh, the inaccessibility of uh, jobs to people in various communities across the province that are supposedly posted the HD mining jobs, for example, uh, uh, that uh, should be, I mean, these are our resources in the province, they should be available to uh, British Columbians instead of, uh, instead of uh, being restricted um, to uh, temporary foreign workers who are willing to work for less um, and uh, in order to save the people who operate the mine money. You know, I think that this, this uh, issue uh, is one um, that the party is, uh, is willing to take on. And I think that um, when, when you look at it, um, one of the major issues is the skills shortage that we're facing in the province and the, um, the failure of the apprenticeship programs in British Columbia to prepare people for these skilled jobs that they're going to need. Another piece is the shipping out of raw resources. And I realize that these, this is getting beyond Vancouver. Um, but people are fleeing uh, rural areas because there are no jobs and coming to Vancouver and finding that there are uh, very low-skilled, low-paying jobs here and just barely scraping by. So we need to address economic opportunities outside of Vancouver as well. And so, for example, we ship raw logs in large quantities um, out of British Columbia, and we need to uh, reel that back in and say, no, if you want to access lumber in British Columbia, um, we're going to insist that, for example... Um, you uh, add value to that lumber through uh, milling, through turning it into uh, uh, secondary products uh, or, or turning it into finished products, uh, whatever it is uh, that we reel back that raw log export. Um, in addition, uh, the BC government uh, abolished the Buy BC program. So this was a program that required governments, school boards, police departments, hospitals, um, uh, secondary agencies to buy British Columbia products first if they could. And uh, we got rid of that program. Uh, and I think that that also uh, is inexcusable. You know, these are tax dollars that come from British Columbians, and they should be used, if possible, to pay for uh, products that create jobs for British Columbians. And so there are little changes like that that we can make that will create meaningful jobs in the province. And of course, um, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, the uh, relentless attack or the uh, difficulty uh, that has been um, put in front of uh, people attempting to organize uh, workers at, for example, a Walmart or uh, uh, another uh, large big box retailer like that, I think that, uh, that uh, the ability of workers to organize for better conditions is essential. And so um, the NDP certainly uh, placing a priority on, uh, on making sure that workers are able to demand their own rights. We often uh, like to use the phrase uh, that cities are a creature of the province, and I'm wondering from your perspective how provincial policy and, and how progressive provincial policy uh, can shape urban life. Um, well, if you, if you look at the recent history of Vancouver, 
um, you'll see that the province has been incredibly influential in shaping this city. So uh, from, uh, from the Olympics uh, uh, to the uh, convention center, the roof on BC Place, the casinos, uh, the, uh, the recent uh, uh, fuss with Surrey about ref- refusing, their city council refusing the casino and the minister uh, attempting to intervene to try to compel Surrey to take the casino. Uh, you know, these um, the the provincial government has had a very clear um, interest in the affairs in Vancouver and in shaping the city of Vancouver. Um, I wish that the province had had more of an interest uh, in making sure that the city uh, remained uh, one that was accessible to all different kinds of people, including people that work in the city. Uh, that uh, and uh, instead of uh, these uh, one-off uh, glamour projects, photo ops. Uh, actual long-range planning for a, a livable, uh, greenest city. I like that um, uh, plan coming out of the municipal government um, and providing support for that vision, that long-range vision, which may not have as many uh, ribbon-cutting ceremonies and may be a little more difficult, um, but is, uh, is something that's a lot better than compelling a casino uh, uh, and, uh, and really speaks to the people in the local community rather than this sort of vision imposed from Victoria. Do you think the province has a role to play in giving Metro Vancouver um, more teeth, so to speak, in how it approaches and implements regional planning? Well, I, I do. I think if you look at what the province has done to TransLink as just one example, or BC Ferries as another, uh, BC Hydro, um, and these are all uh, shorthand for me, and I'll just go very briefly into TransLink as one example. Um, the mayors had uh, were involved directly in the governance of TransLink and which projects went ahead and what kind of projects went ahead. They were stripped of their role, their decision-making power within TransLink, and a board of bureaucrats with zero, literally zero accountability to the communities that TransLink is supposed to ser- serve was installed instead. And so that's the kind of thing that says... Um, Metro Vancouver uh, um, and the people who live there, the, uh, that, who elect the officials, don't actually deserve any say in how they get around uh, the community. And that's just one example. So when you look at coastal communities uh, turning, uh, 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 taking BC ferries uh, and turning it into the incredibly inefficient uh, model that it is now, uh, where they're actually, and I can't believe it, I've, my, I have a friend who has uh, access to Canucks, uh, season's tickets and I would go see a Canucks game with him and there'd be literally a BC Ferries advertisement at the Canucks game I'm like how, how else am I going to get to the Gulf Islands you know like I, I <laughs> you don't need to advertise uh, Monopoly service yeah. you don't need to advertise BC Hydro at the Olympics because guess what I'm going to buy my hydro from BC Hydro you don't need to advertise ICBC at the Olympics because I'm still going to insure my car through ICBC so these kinds of things just drive people absolutely berserk so I, I got away from your question a bit on TransLink uh, as a great example the province has uh, moved to be more authoritarian by stripping uh, cities of their say around the planning of the region, and uh, that needs to be reversed, and the NDP will be restoring mayor's uh, control over TransLink. Does that make you nervous? I mean, in, in some ways, um, critics on the on the left say cities um, should, in many instances, have more control, um, but the funding to complement that, that responsibility and control. But does that make you nervous at all, um, giving more responsibility, and ideally that would come with uh, more taxation abilities, but... Does that trend worry you, or do you think there's, there's a bit of room there? 
Well, it's, it's definitely a ceding of control from the province. And so the reason why uh, the BC government, the, the Liberal government, stripped the mayors of their power was because they were making decisions that the provincial government didn't agree with. And I think that um, democracy, it, it introduced an element of uncertainty in the master planning that was coming out of Victoria because people, excuse me, people who live in the area might actually have a different opinion than the master planners uh, do. And I think that, uh, that that's an important facet of democracy is that you give people that voice and it does introduce uncertainty and it does introduce uh, the fact that you might have, have a great plan, but guess what? The mayors don't like it, so you're going to have to either work with them and work with their communities or abandon it. It's harder, it takes longer, but it's a much better process and it's one that people understand uh, much more comprehensively. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. And David, I want to thank you uh, so much for coming in live in studio and uh, best of luck to you. Great. Thanks, Sandy. We're going to go out with the track actually, uh, once again, curated by David E.B. Yeah, this is White Lung, a friend of mine, and uh, and they are going to Pitchfork uh, uh, Music Festival. So very exciting for them. This is The City here on CATR 101.9 FM, CATR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. I'm Andy Longhurst. Check out the website, thecityfm.org. We'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Thanks for tuning in.